0: I'm a lousy Uber driver, but I'm really good at solving electrical engineering problems, especially with historical precedents. I now figured out Nathan Stubblefield's Earth battery. I already figured out his heater, and I had previously to that figured out that it's an electrostatic system driven by migratory current or uh, similar to what Mitko Gorgiev has elucidated on the electric universe space on Cora, governed or administered by uh, Franco Bruno Cordelleti, in which his motto there is the uh, universe is founded on the square root of negative one, is something like that. I can't remember the motto exactly. The foundation of the universe. Anyway, so the power stations has to be. So I pondered to myself while I'm driving away from a delivery of a customer. Um, how is... It, it all has to do with the windings because... Or excuse me, the wiring of his so-called electric battery, which is what the U.S. Patent Office wanted to call it. And they had the last word on the subject. Uh, but Nathan wanted to call it a generator, an earth generator. Well, it is a generator of sort. It's more like a transducer because it accumulates Earth energy um, and atmospheric energy because it's planted under the roots of an old oak tree for one year before he engages it in operation. So you've got this aerial. And then I'm thinking, well, Tesla had a patent on that, didn't he? An elevated uh, plate covered with an insulation, and a single wire coming down from the plate... Um, Meeting up and connecting with one side of a capacitance, and the other side goes to earth, and the two sides of the capacitor create a circle or go off and at right angles to this long uh, linear vertical aerial arrangement to create a circular loop between the shorting out the two sides of the capacitor. But he has a uh, a switch to pulse. The uh, discharges of the capacitor. And he says after a certain length of time, the capacitor builds up. And of course, we know that because uh, we concur because the um, charge at the Earth is negative while the charge in the atmosphere is positive, or let's say moving away from the negative of ground to greater and greater degrees of moving away depending on how elevated is the altitude in this case of your capacitive plate your uh, single plate uh, up there in the sky now this is very similar to the arrangement that Nathan Stubblefield created but he worked as much as he could with nature so instead of using an elevated plate he uses a tree (laughs) with its leaves (laughs) Eh, or not with its leaves if it's deciduous, But in case of oak, it's not deciduous. That's right. So it keeps its leaves even in the winter. How about that? Anyway. So what is the wiring in his earth battery? This is the mystery. So I asked the question to myself, well, it has to create an electrostatic field somehow. How would it do that? It looks more like a transformer than anything else. And then I realized... How to do that? By tweaking the patent. Remember, invent, good inventors or good patent attorneys will tell their inventors, you don't put all your goods out in the patent. You don't, you don't say everything. You hold a few choice little tidbits to yourself or else what's the good of having a patent, you know? What's the good of trying to get royalties off of it? Sorry, <laughs> it's early morning. I have a lot of Okay, anyway. Um, So what he did, he describes in the patent that he has an insulated copper wire. He doesn't say what he coats the cloth sleeve with, but I'm sure he uses the dielectric of choice in those days, which was, um, well, Tesla used it. Mark McKay talks about that. Um, It's a mixture of beeswax, tree rosin, and carnauba wax, uh, 5% in Tesla's case for the carnauba wax and 50-50 for the other two ingredients. But everybody had their different formulation depending on usage in that day, a century ago. It was a very popular generic recipe. So Tesla didn't invent it. He just used what was available at the time and came up with his own formulation of of proportional ratios. Um, Mark McKay makes it out to be like his favorite well okay but that doesn't imply anything else okay so we don't we uh, we, we don't know but since the earth battery is buried under the earth the whole coil is going to short out unless you coat each winding slather it up with something and the cloth is just there to hold it well that's what Tesla did according to Mark McKay he stuffed cotton in between the windings and then slathered on his special formulation so I'm sure Nathan did the same thing And then he says there's an iron winding, of bare iron wire, adjacent, parallel, with the insulated copper winding. But what if he had two copper windings, not one? And what if he put a borax diode on each to cause the current in each to go in opposite directions? Now, the aerial is going to bring in variable power from the atmosphere. And then, of course, we have variable currents and voltage changes in the earth. So the tree is going to pick up both with its roots and leaves and and the sap. Actually, not the leaves only, but the sap in the branches and the trunk. That's important that it's a live tree. Can't be dead, according to George O. Squire who, a general, I think he was a general, uh, he had a few patents a century ago on using trees for aerials for ground radio operators in the U.S. Army to boost signal strength (laughs) in addition to the built-in aerial that they... Well, actually, it was a handheld aerial that uh, the field uh, radio operators would use, and they'd hold it up in the air. Well, you can only get so much with that. So using a tree is pretty good, and I did that. I did that experiment with a transistor radio. I put it on an AM station, and I connected, I drove a bare iron nail into a tree through the bark deep enough to hit the uh, sap, it was a living tree, and I connected that to the aerial and the transistor radio, and since it was already connected and I had it on, I found that it boosted the signal of the radio broadcasting station that I was tuned into, and reduced the background noise, so trees make great aerial, boosting aerials. Gotta use them whenever you can. If they're a live tree, they have to be living. Because the branch work creates the correct shape for the sap suspended in air to, to act as an aerial. It's the sap that's acting as an aerial, not the tree. The tree just gives it form and, and, and keeps the shape of that sap, but the sap is the conductor uh, substituting for the aluminum aerial. Now, so we have three windings around the iron bolt in the patent of Nathan Stubblefield, according to my speculation. Two of them are insulated copper and one is bare iron to retain the magnetic field, remnants of the copper winding. At least one iron winding. It could be more than one. Uh, It could be massive. It could be 12, for all we know. uh, To boost the preservation strength of the of the signal, the magnetic portion of the signal going through the copper winding so we don't lose it now this goes to Oliver Heaviside's credit and this is the era, the 1880s that Nathan Stubblefield was working within so it's the time frame of his co-inventors or co-workers, shall we say actually, co-workers living in that era swapping ideas, you know use the best uh, technology that you have available, right? But borax diodes or baking soda diodes in a liquid solution with an aluminum anode and some other metal azure cathode was the diode of that era. And I figured out how to use make a t- transistor out of it, but I haven't divulged with you what, what is the schematic of the Sierra Leone circuit of 1921 that makes use of that transistor, nor the variation that tra- Tesla might have used in 1931 for his Pierce era that I uh, have to give credit to Byron Brubaker for that little tidbit and a little nod to uh, Joseph Newman that already hints to you what it may be if you are familiar with my postings in that area uh, area of concern anyway some hint slight hint but not a complete hint not the whole all the details anyway sorry for the snort uh, I'm snorting mucus. <laughs> I don't snort cocaine. I snort mucus. That's my drug of choice. Hey, Gewalt. I'm 66. What can I say? And I'm dying. <laughs> what else is good news? Um, well, I like to put off death as long as possible. Yes, so... And each of the copper, two copper windings. So at least two. And they're a pair. And this is significant because whenever I did over unity circuits, everything has to go in pairs. The windings of a transformer... Um, the capacitor, um, capacitors have to come in pairs and so we literally do what Eric Dollar did in his analog computer we c- create pairs of capacitive reactants and pairs of inductive reactants you need that because the field of one has to modify excuse me the field of the other one capacitor modifying the other vice versa one coil modifying the other vice versa because when you get fields modification you get parametric variation, and that boosts your power. And that you can look that up on Wikipedia. Uh, parametric amplification in the audio industry—they don't want to talk about, and or nor suggest uh, for the power industry, God forbid—but <laughs> it'll bring down the house, so to speak, the Federal Reserve house, to, to be more blunt. Um, so. We have two uh, two copper windings, insulated, each insulated, and an iron winding, at least one, possibly several. And each copper winding has its own borax diode in opposite directions to create an opposite field. Now, that's going to cancel the overall net magnetic field, giving you... An electrostatic field without magnetism. Isn't that the most superb thing on the planet? An electrostatic generator. Now, because we're feeding this thing pulses or, you know, varying... Not pulses, excuse me. Varying surges. Could be sine waves, could be pulses that the um, aerial, the living tree aerial is picking up and feeding to this set of coils. Because of that the diodes are going to be building up an accumulation of current per half cycle which translates into voltage which creates a surge on the next half cycle of release. So we basically have a capacitive kind of situation in these coils in which they charge up a voltage and they discharge it even though they're coils but because they're managed by diodes. This is the way to look at it because overall that's what the whole picture is, you know, it's the buildup of voltage using alternating current driven by alternating current that's accentuated due to the placement of a diode in which very little current flows in one half cycle and a lot of current in the next and we get a surge of voltage each half cycle, plus and minus in amplitude. And so we have ourselves an electrostatic generator, essentially. And I could never figure out in the past why anybody <laughs> would uh, think up the cockamamie of uh, having uh, two coils uh, counterwound, but this is effectively how you do that. Without counterwinding, you use borax diodes to get make sure that you get opposing magnetic fields simultaneously without having to wind it counter winding. Now if you do counter winding, I doubt you'll get the same extreme results if you drop the diodes. If you do copper winding with the diodes in opposite directions, connected in opposite directions, you may accentuate it. You may get the maximum of voltage surges. I don't know. In any case, this is the basis for his electrostatic generator. And it's a pulse system. It's not DC. So it's no wonder he didn't like the U.S. Patent Office calling it a Earth battery just because it looked like the Earth batteries of that day that were powering the telegraph system of that, you know, dating back to the 1840s, 50s, or whenever the telegraph was invented. Uh, they used alternating plates, let's say zinc and iron, <clears throat> and gravel in between, and they buried it. And they connected all the copper plates together and all the zinc plates together or whatever pair of types of plates they had. And then they had their two leads to power their DC-powered telegraph system. So the patent office thought, oh, it's one of those. It's not. It's a pulsed electrostatic generator. It's going to be pulsing surges of electrostatic surges, voltage surges. Oh, it's this is unbelievable. And you want that, don't you? (laughs) I would. That's power. That's the amplification of power. And already he uses a a witching uh, branch, you know, uh, witching wand, Uh, they break off a branch from a tree to uh, look not for water, but for ley lines, where the magnetic lines of force in the earth are strongest. So he used every technique imaginable to increase his power and I must say the guy was a genius <laughs> par excellence that guy I'm oh a god he, you know, he, in his own way he rivals Tesla in his own way though by working with nature as much as possible Tesla was a true uh, truly oriented along electrical engineering lines in, in the sense that not that he gave away the knowledge <laughs> boy he sure didn't do that. and not. Uh, but he was very good at analysis, and he was excellent at simulating in his brain. He had a photographic memory to boot. And the use of brute force, because we know he used extreme voltages and extreme uh, frequencies. And that's the kind of conventional ideology that pervades society to this day. And he founded AC powers, so it's not... But he went on from that to other things, more refined, more, more, more working with nature. Basically, he started to veer in the direction of working with nature. And of course, if you're a banker like C. P. Morgan who put uh, Tesla out of business in 1903, forty years before Tesla's death, by making him commercially paralyzed, you're gonna th- you-, you think in terms of brute force because that's the way the money system works. In fact, that's why we have money. (laughs) I mean, well, fiat currency at any rate. You know, if we had merely gold and silver coin and no receipts to represent gold and silver in a warehouse, just the gold and silver alone, we'd be working with nature. And we would not be intervening in any way, shape, or form with the monetary system that nature provides. But we intervene out of convenience, blah, 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 all kinds of rational Excuses, but we've gotten this hideous fiat currency system that's going to collapse. Or I re- realized the other night there's an alternative to that. Oh shit! I hate it when, when people. Okay. <clears throat> he does have the button right away. Um, what was I saying before I got rudely distracted? Oh, one way to avoid hyperinflation and the destruction of the economy is to simply wipe out a large portion of the population. And that's the reason why 96% of the population will disappear overnight. Literally, we're going to have corpses in buildings that will have to be bulldozed. And this has been prophesied, and I've had premonitions, and oh my God. it, It bothered me how it's going to be done. I still don't know how. but and the why we're given reasons on the internet but this one is the most hideous because I dreamed it up myself simply to ensure the um, survival of our monetary system and for no other reason can you imagine such people who value human life as zero and I know such people Frank Sinatra was one and President Bush Senior was another if you want to name names I'll name them I don't mind But um, they're both dead, so it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, some people, they just don't value human life. And it's no small wonder that I cooked up this speculative idea as to uh, why um, 96%... Because Charlie Lutz prophesied this. One in 26 people will survive... And he was very strict or stern with me because I thought he was just being metaphorically liberal. When he quoted the Bible, uh, two will be standing in a field and one will uh, remain, uh, one will disappear and one will remain in regard to the, um, what's it called? It starts with the letter R, the rapture. But... um, when I said, oh, it won't be that bad, it won't be 50% of the population disappearing, I commented to my uh, TM teacher and uh, after, uh, during break, and when we came back, uh, Charlie was very stern and, and turned in my direction and unequivocally stated 1 in 26. So there's no... And then I found this chart on the Internet that said the New World Order, so to speak, wants to kill off uh, 96% of the population due to various uh, rationalizations, uh, you know, but that's, that's nice, but that's just the cover story. If they stated their real intention, we'd go wacko now. You know, they say, oh, it's overpopulation, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. Bullshit. And I knew that because Buckminster Fuller told us we can s- support 10 billion people on this planet very comfortably the problem is with distribution the haves have it and the have-nots don't and that's basically it we pay orange farmers to to plow their crop into their soil to boost the sa- uh the sale price to boost their income vegans no that we have been subsidizing the meat industry for a century heavily, and that's just one example. Meat prices would not be what they are, depressed as they are. They would be ridiculously higher in cost to the consumer without the government subsidization of the of the meat industry. The red or yeah, the the meat industry, uh, such as it was hundred years ago. It was very expensive to buy meat. Um, it was, and and that's the only reason why it was in short supply. See? So by having government subsidy increased production. It gave them motivation for increasing production. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother. How could they? <laughs> so this way, they make more money by depressing the price rather than raising it. In the case of the orange farmers, by, com- by contrast... But my grandparents, uh, no, my great-grandparents, right, on my mother's, on my grandmother's side, my maternal grandmother's side in Russia, living in a little shanty town. <clears throat> yeah, they were poor, but um, it wasn't merely, I guess, yeah, only, right. So that's the vegan statistic. Only the wealthy could, could afford to eat meat such as we do today. Because my great grandparents, my on my maternal side, were poor, and they were lucky if they got a little piece of meat the size of their finger, their pinky, on Shabbos night, on Friday night, once a week. Everybody else in the family, <laughs> forget it. They had eggs, they had dairy, they had fish, they had fruits and vegetables, and various grains, but they did n- and beans, but they did not have um, red meat to speak of. So, I got a little off-topic here. It's Nathan Stubblefield, and his power system. Yeah, I've, I, well, I'm sorry. I'm an emotionally driven activist, and that's why. And I'm an integrator. I barely graduated with a C-minus average. And a lot of my topics were like that, that I took in high school and whatnot. And I flunked stuff in college, like Physics because I thought it was a creative writing class. Hey, they can come up with theories. I can too, so I will. <laughs> but my teacher didn't appreciate that, so he flunked me. Um, yeah, um, <clears throat> where was I? Oh, but I spent all my time integrating. So when the teacher was talking about a subject, didn't matter what the subject was. I was thinking in my brain, okay, how does that relate to everything else we've been taught in other subjects this semester and prior semesters? And that made it easier for me to remember what she was talking about because it, I would form connections between parallelisms and other topics, other subjects that helped me remember. It was a mnemonic device, not that I was trying to remember, uh, That, but that was a side effect. What I was trying to do was get the big picture of reality. I wanted a cosmic view of reality. I wanted to see things the way God sees things. And the only way to do that is to work at it piecemeal, right, as a human – one piece at a time, trying to connect all the dots to get the big picture. <clears throat> so, it kept me behind the class. Oh, I was lo- as slow as molasses because I was doing too much. I was doing way more than what most people do. It would have been boring if I, <laughs> if I didn't challenge myself. Anyway. Um, sorry, I'm still in my car. Got to open the windows getting warm in here. So, <clears throat> um, it's an, so, I have really nothing more to say. That's probably why I'm segueing into other topics. But it explains, because, it, you know, the giveaway, I'll tell you what the giveaway is, that it was an electrostatic system uh, for, uh, all in all, was the pith ball thing. We have various stories piecing together his technology, And mostly the stories deal with his appliances more than anything else. And his arc lanterns were lit by a single wire going to one of the two carbon rods. So it kind of makes you wonder. And he hung it in the oak tree above where the power generator was. So that puts the... um, the chassis and the other, which the chassis might have been electrically connected to the floating uh, the uh, um, carbon rod that wasn't connected to his power source, causing the migratory current that is required, according to Mitko Gorgiev, due to the fact that he's hanging it in the tree above where he has the power station down below that he's connected to through one wire. So through migratory current, that lantern is going to light up. Because the electrostatic field generated by the tree, which is electrically connected to the power station, is going to put the lantern in an electrostatic field, elevated from the ambient field of the atmosphere at ground level. So we've got ions moving between the lantern and the tree, creating a loop, but it's a migratory current. So it's not expending current. So this kind of demonstrates and proves I guess that in some cases you can take a current oriented device such as an arc lantern of a century ago and run it on an electrostatic charge but it's a varying electrostatic charge it's not DC this is very significant Uh, managed by diodes or accentuated, excuse me, managed by the earth, created by the earth, but accentuated by diodes. This is very important that we take all of this into consideration to fully understand and figure out not merely how his system worked, but overcome the challenge of figuring out how it worked in view of its utter simplicity of design this guy was a genius. And it takes geniuses to figure out a simple way to solve a problem. And he did. He went straight to the source, I guess. Maybe not too much trial and error. We don't know that. (laughs) We don't know that part. But he definitely... So, this... Now, I've added in. So now I've described the heater. Now I've figured out the uh, lanterns, how they operated. I still don't know how the ambient light of the um, air molecules at ground level was brought about so that his uh, arc lanterns at the time of his death were extinguished. He didn't bother using them anymore. They were left hanging in the tree, but uh, they didn't operate anymore. So that's one appliance I still don't know. And the pith ball one. That's another one. Now, the pith ball is based on the... um, uh, what's (coughs) What's it called? You know those little fans or those... I figure it's a certain thing that somebody invented. I think it was a Tesla invention. It's inside a glass globe, and it rotates. It spins due to the presence of, I think, an electrostatic field, or you connect one wire to it. I forget. Or you have the sun or light shine on the veins to charge them up, and it gets them to start rotating. And one side is more charged than the other because uh, you paint one side, I think, of those... Uh, aluminum veins. I can't remember, but it—you might be familiar with it. I'm trying to describe it to you so you can picture it in your mind. It starts with a letter R, I think. But I can't remember the name of that appliance. In any case, <coughs> the pith ball thingy is predicated on that function, the functionality of that uh, device, and it's—he had it rigged so that he could tell <coughs> if anybody entered. The surrounding area, uh, the area surrounding his shack. He had it uh, set up inside his shack. And he knew instantly where the person was. And so he could sneak up at night behind a tree and boo them, scare them and saying, you know, what are you doing on my property? And they would scamper like crazy because he always knew where they were. And the pith balls, you hang them from a thread. I, I believe it's a silk thread. And you have electrodes at least two, but he obviously had more than two. He probably had a a ring, a circular ring of electrodes, and the pith ball went in different directions to, to, to indicate where the intruder was located, and then it probably stretched a certain distance away from dead center Um, towards the electrode to indicate how far towards the perimeter of his property they were located. But how it operated, how it was connected to his property, I don't know. Maybe each electrode was connected to each generator and the generators were positioned in a ring surrounding, a circumferential ring surrounding his shack. That would be my best guess estimation. And that would make sense, sort of. Not quite. Because how... I, I guess... He created a compositional electrostatic field made up of, let's say, a dozen power stations encircling his shack, evenly spaced, or more or less, whatever, or as best he could, because he had to make use of the trees and depended where the trees were. So he got this polygonal shape, and at each vertex is the tree and the power station. Each line of the power station is coming in to one electrode of that pith ball device and there you go. There, I've solved that problem. So I've worked out everything now except the ambient lighting. Yeah, that's a mystery to me. It's obviously ionization but it's not lethal. You walk through it and it lights up the air molecules surrounding your face, your body, so that the light is coming from all directions as if it's recessed lighting behind the tree or something, you know, or overhead. I mean, it's really... but. I, it, that's exactly what to the des- way to describe it. You must not change the description of the witnesses who were there, thinking, oh, it must have been done with recessed lighting, blah, blah, blah. Uh-uh. No, it was the air molecules themselves. You have to take it literally, and this is why. Because yogis can do the same thing. There is a story I was told from a TM teacher or a TM meditator, I forget which, of an instance in which, in which Maharishi asked... A TM meditator or a TM teacher—I forget which—to take a walk with him. And Marshi was at Rishikesh at the time. This was would have been the uh, late '60s, I think, or early '70s. I don't know. I don't know when it was. Let's put it that way. Might have been later. He asked him to take a walk with him in the middle of the night. So they went and took a walk. Pitch black. The guy had a little trouble just keeping up with Marji. Marshi somehow knew where to go, even though you could not see the nose in front of your face, you know, so to speak. Well, he reached this yogi, this recluse, who was out there in the forest. And he had pl- and Marishi placed one hand on the yogi's bare chest and the other on the opposite side between his shoulder blades and lit up the air molecules surrounding them as bright as the noonday sun, exactly the way the witnesses described the airspace surrounding Nathan Stubblefield's cabin when they found it locked from the inside and he had starved to death. And his heater was running and the light was running. This was in the dead of night. And they hadn't seen him in several days. And a few days prior he said, I have fulfilled my life's purpose. I am completely satisfied. Meaning he had figured out all these stuff. Not just the power station and the telluric telephony, but intruder location, lighting, heating, and maybe a few other things. I don't know. But this is what we know. This is uh, among the stories that have circulated. I haven't seen any other stories to any other effect of what he invented. That sounds like five devices. A power station, telluric telephonics, lighting, heating, and location of intruders disturbing the electrostatic field. So that's five inventions. One of them a power uh, generator, and the other five of them are loads. Excuse me, the other four of those five are electrical loads. And that's not bad for an inventor. Uh, Working alone, an unschooled... I mean, he had a few years of uh, schooling, and he was just a country uh, melon farmer, a Kentucky uh, uh, country bumpkin. But he was a genius, an untapped genius up to that point. He literally tapped into his genius qualities and created all of these technologies which has been mysteries up till now, except one still is, and I've managed to figure out some of them, but um, not all of them. And that's okay. You know, my subconscious, you know, is probably busy working away at this, you know, (laughs) along with my uh, intuition, you know, the two of them playing tag relay or something, you know, something to that effect. But I had to share this with you because it's so, I'm so marveled his genius I really am I mean and I have to uh, so I made a space on Core devoted to him because I think he deserves to be promoted you know he's one of those unsung heroes he, he truly is a hero of the world of inventors and w- I don't want us to lose sight of him just because he's not famous like Tesla you know it, this is another genius you know, there are there are a few others and I and John Bedini t- spoke of them and this is the only reason why I found out about this dude was because John Bedini spoke about him on his website when he was alive. Um, he had pages devoted to him or at least one page and it really intrigued me. <laughs> he said, oh, this is a mystery. I want to, yeah, I want to get to the bottom of this one, right? So, I'm making progress little by little um, but, um... We'll just have to wait patiently for the next wave of inspiration to come over me and figure out the atmospheric uh, lighting. Because Tesla was going to do the same thing, but he was going to do it in the upper atmosphere, I guess the stratosphere, and ring the planet with 24-7 lighting. You know, God, that would have been throwing everything off kilter. It's a good thing he never did it. <laughs> oh, God, wrecked up the biologic, the biorhythms of all every creature on this planet. I don't know what he was thinking. I think he was nuts on that one. Maybe, maybe he had some other ideas in mind. You know, I don't know. Whatever. Um, but he could do. He could manipulate light. He was a master magician. That guy, Tesla. So, and and he lived in the same time as Nathan Subblefield. So, they thought along certain lines that were parallel with each other. So, but I don't know. This is. Um, I'm sure it has some. If I had studied, and I never have, the aurora borealis. I'm sure I would have. I would figure it out. Um, Because when the air is surged, but how do you do that? Did he connect his earth batteries back to the tree? Because he just planted it underneath the tree. So I don't know. I I I don't get it. (laughs) I just don't get it. Um, Did he put a wire mesh down on the ground? because he uses it, according to my intuition, for the heater system. So it's not a semi-loop on opposite walls of his shack at right angles to the vertical placement of his two parallel polished sheets of metal that are creating eddy currents within themselves heating up the cabin. They're floating plates. They're not connected to anything. But they're in this, the center of this electrostatic field at right angles, use, making use of the right-hand rule of electrical engineering they're at right angles to the field electrostatic field generator uh mesh uh, uh, square uh sheet of mesh that he has on opposing walls of his shack so it came to me a a subsequent night that it's mesh and so i i want to upgrade the heater technology because it's not a semi loop that doesn't connect with itself it is a bunch of loops Unfortunately, that create eddy currents of its own, but it's a mesh, a wire mesh that he's using on opposing walls. Um, And, of course, the two wire meshes on opposing walls are connected to the opposite leads of a Leiden jar, or a series of Leiden jars, to hold enough capacitance... um, to charge up his field with the adequate characteristics. So maybe some Leiden jars were hooked up in parallel, some in series, maybe he had a square array of them. Whatever he had, he would have had to have done that, because that's reason kicking in, you know, (laughs) or else the system wouldn't have been optimized to operate at peak efficiency without that capacitance um, connected to his... um, two uh, mesh screens to give them opposite polarity this is very crucial in order to create that electrostatic force uh, field and optimize that uh, creation of optimization surrounding the two plates in the center at right angles to the uh, mesh screen so that helps that upgrades that one because i didn't do a audio recording upgrading the heater And now I think I've said everything I need to say. I forget what the topic was. I'll have to go back to the beginning. Uh, Oh, it's the the generator. Right, the so-called earth battery, the earth generator. Yeah, the double winding with the inverted uh, diodes. Yeah, that is pure genius too. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this little excursion into speculative history. Um, I sure do. I enjoy it. It makes my boring day worthwhile it highlights my day and if I didn't have a brain like this I, I'd be a boring dude according to my point of view <laughs> and this way it keeps life interesting sayonara I forgot that um, in order to complete the pith ball pathway for migratory current um, the pith ball thread hanging in the center of the let's say dozen electrodes each electrode connected to each power station that silk thread upon which the pith ball is hanging it has to be connected to ground I mean it could be a floating charge but I think wouldn't it be more effective if it was grounded I don't know I don't know that's my speculation at any rate I thought I'd add that in